Hello, and welcome to the Music Teacher Coffee Talk podcast. I'm Carrie. And I'm Tanya. We are both elementary music teachers who love to talk shop, preferably over a steaming cup of coffee. This is episode 115. Today we'll be continuing our 2022 Summer Book Club by discussing part two of Culturally Responsive Teaching and the Brain by Zaretta Hammond. We'll also do a fun summer quiz. And in our CODA section, we'll give some specific recommendations of our favorite things we are enjoying in or out of the music room, but right now out of the music room. So grab your beverage of choice and let's get started. And now it's time for some summer fun time quiz. All right. So, Carrie. Yeah. This time around, um, I have a little quiz for you. It's not from BuzzFeed. <laughs> yeah, we gave up on BuzzFeed, didn't we? <laughs> I mean, there are times and places for BuzzFeed, but we <laughs> yeah, it was getting a there. It was getting a little crazy over there with BuzzFeed quizzes. Not not the one that we did last week. That I I'm amazed that you found that one, considering some of the yeah. stuff that I was looking at. Yeah. Um, this one comes from like a travel, nutrition, wellness website oh, it's a little more grown up. yes a little <laughs> more grown up and that's the other thing is that you don't want to type in grown up quiz because who knows what that'll lead right. to um but this is what's your summer vacation personality oh nice okay because you know it's summer it is and we're not on vacation but hey we can dream okay okay all righty now carrie Yes. Close I'm... your eyes. <laughs> Why? I can't see. Close your, close your eyes and imagine yourself on a vacation. And here are some choices. What do you hear? The sound of crashing ocean waves and seagulls? That's A. B. Chattering in a language that you can't understand? C. Children laughing and squealing with joy? D. A knock at the door followed by someone saying room service? Oh, three of the four sound fabulous. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm going to have to go with crashing waves. I love crashing waves. the beach. I don't get to go to the beach very often. So, yeah. Yeah. We're landlocked. I don't either. Mm. All right. You could open your eyes now. Uh, what, <laughs> Thanks. What's your idea of the perfect meal? A, anything besides lunch at your work desk. B, exotic cuisine in a restaurant that you've never tried before. C, a casual dinner where all the kids behave and nothing is spilled. D, a romantic meal for two by candlelight with wine and dessert. Mm, I'm going to go with um, the exotic meal. I know. Me too. Yeah. <laughs> oh, are you that. taking this quiz with me? I'm not. I'm oh. not. I just, I'm just chiming in Got it. when okay. I feel like it. Um, all right. How do you want to feel when you return from your next vacation? A, relaxed. B, inspired. C, connected. D, in love. I will say... I want all of them. I know, right? That's hard to pick. Um, I'm going to say inspired. Inspired. <laughs> okay. Number four. What would ruin your trip? Mm. A, Having too many plans and not enough time to chill. B, downtime overload. You can only sunbathe for so long. C, being away from the people I love the most. D, going alone. 
Mm. I'll say downtime overload. Mm. Even though I said the beach, but I like doing things at the beach. Okay. You don't want too much downtime. Got yep. it. All right. C, what is your favorite souvenir from your last vacation? A, you don't even remember. It was so long ago. <laughs> B, a handmade craft or painting bought in a local market. C, a picture of your family together. D, a special gift given to you by your traveling partner. Oh, I know your answer. It's B. <laughs> a handmade craft or painting bought in a lo local market? Yeah, because we went to all in our in our European vacation, we went to all the Christmas markets. That's true. That's okay. my last well, I, I real you... vacation. What were you thinking? I, th I was thought you were going to say something about a picture of your family together. Well, okay. So this is where I'm like, I don't consider that to be a vacation. <laughs> Going well, that to says see my in-laws with my kids and my husband, while lovely, is not a vacation. That's a trip. Somebody said, asked me that question. Was it a vacation or a trip? And I said, oh, that's an interesting dis distinction. It was a trip. It was not a vacation. <laughs> okay. I love my family. It's just different. That's all. Okay, I okay. hear you. Interesting. I think I've never been on a vacation. Yes, you have. <laughs> hmm, have I ever been on a vacation? They've all been family trips. Oh, wow. Well, it can be a family trip, but a family trip to go see more family is definitely different than like a family trip to somewhere you go together. Right. All right. Okay. Okay. So this is a whole, if you answered mostly A's or B's or C's and all that. Mm, yeah, yeah. All right. You answered almost exclusively B's. Oh. And it says, if you answered mostly B's, you are ready for a true adventure. Book that trip you've always wanted to take and explore a culture that's totally different from your own. Go bungalow hopping in Thailand. Try Peru on for size or immerse yourself in the colorful markets of Morocco. Sign up for an eco tour or volunteer in a foreign country. Yeah, I, this is definitely the type of vacation I want to go on for sure. Yeah, totally. If I had them all the money and time in the world. Yeah, I, I actually I'm mostly um, no, I'm mostly A's, which is uh, I want a take a breather, recharge, you know, soothing, relaxing, um, bring a book and lie on the beach vacation right and now. And that's all good too. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, adventure. Cool. Fun. We'll put the link to that in the show notes in case anyone else wants to take the fun quiz. Oh yeah. Yeah. So we are now into part two of Culturally Responsive Teaching in the Brain by Zaretta Hammond. And part two is all about building learning partnerships, which is kind of that next chunk on the, what did she call it? The ready for rigor framework? Yes, ready for rigor framework. Yeah. Um, and so chapter five, six, and seven are all part of this second section. So we're going to talk about those one by one tonight and um, starting with chapter five, which is building the foundation of learning partnerships. Which I think could be summed up in this thing that we say all the time. It's all about relationships. Yes, it is all about relationships. Um, one thing that I, I highlighted that I really 
noticed in this chapter and kind of throughout this section is the difference between, you know, building real relationships and trust and not just like surface level, inspirational poster cat hanging on a wire, hang in there kid kind of thing that it goes deeper than those surface level things. It's not just about building up self-esteem in a surface level way, but really about building trust. And that's where you're going to get to that next level of students becoming more self-sufficient in their learning, right? Right. And, and getting to know your students is going to go towards building trust. And, you know, I think for... I kept thinking about us as elementary teachers and us as elementary music teachers who get to see kids from kindergarten all the way to fifth grade and what a benefit that is. Yeah. Um, and that when we do start with them in kindergarten uh, or first grade or second grade, that they are a lot more open to building that relationship. So today I... Um, and you know this, Carrie, I, I went and I subbed for summer school. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I, it was just two classes, and they were music classes. And I don't know any of these students, like not a one. Um, they were all new to me kids. And just in that 45-minute time frame, it was really interesting because I had just been reading this chapter. Um, and there were so many kids who wanted to tell me all the things and they they're like that right yeah. but these were um second graders and then third graders and that's something we see a lot in kindergarten for sure but really all through elementary school we see these kids who are really anxious to tell you about their dad's birthday tomorrow and how they're all going to red lobster like they want to share mm -hmm. they want to talk to you they want to they want to be known and make connections yeah yeah, you're right. I think for us, sometimes it's it's hard because, you know, obviously we don't see the kids as often as a classroom teacher does. We don't get to know their family dynamics as quickly. But what we get is the longevity oftentimes of getting to see them grow up and getting to see them change and being with them for those changes. Um, however, and on top mm -hmm. of it, when one works in Title I schools, um, the turnover rate is higher. And so this is something that I've struggled with in my time in, in Title I schools is the, the in and out of students at a much higher rate. And that makes it difficult to build relationships when you get a kiddo who's brand new as a fifth grader or a sixth grader. And now I'm trying to build that trust in the relationship with that kid when I haven't had them the length that I had my other students. That's something that's always been a challenge is to do that quickly in the amount of time that we have. But yeah doesn't negate the importance of it. Um, we just have to work even harder when you're in those situations of you get a kid who's brand new to their school, they're not feeling that trust for you that might require you to go sit in the cafeteria and have lunch with them or invite them into your room for lunch or, you know, all things that we've talked about on this podcast before, just small things that we can do to build those relationships as quickly as possible. Yeah, and I really wanted to touch on something that struck a chord with me, not to be punny about it, but on page 79, um, there's a figure 5.2, and it's trust genera generators, and there's a list of um, characteristics like selective vulnerability, familiarity, similarity of interest, concern, like ways it's defined, and then 
what that looks like. And I was, I'm really zoning in on selective vulnerability. Mm-hmm. And the definition is people respect and connect with others who share their own vulnerable moments. It means showing your human side that is not perfect. Now, um, I zoned in on that because something that I really stress uh, when I'm teaching pedagogy level one Kodai um, is when I, mo- I model a lesson and I end a kindergarten lesson by singing and playing and I do this in real life too often um, with the little kids and the big kids and I think that this is a really good way to do lots of things first of all you're showing yourself as a musician mm-hmm. like I'm your music teacher and I'm a musician like I have this I have these skills right um, you are showing your vulnerability when you are singing and playing in front of anybody. I mean, that that's a huge, big takeaway that I want my students to come away with in music is that, wow, here is something that is enjoyable and it also is a different way to show your vulnerability. Yeah. Right? But I have to go first, right? Mm-hmm. And I have to show the students, oh, look, here's me vulnerable as a musician and that is such a gift that no one else in your school is probably going to give them right yeah who else is going to do that right yeah i've talked a lot with my students about composition specifically improvisation that that's an area that i struggle with as a musician it's not something that i learned to do from a young age so you know that's that is is a difficult and vulnerable thing we know for kids and adults to do is making something up on the spot so that's a really good place to moderate that as well when it comes to being vulnerable for your kiddos Totally. Yeah. And then back to just the emphasis of it's all building trust, not building self-esteem. That's mm-hmm. that, that, that kids are coming to you yeah. with, with their self-esteem and that you're affirming and acknowledging them as, as a human, as a human yeah. being. I appreciate on page 77, she breaks down the difference between affirmation and validation. Um, I'm just going to read from page 77. She says, affirming is simply acknowledging the personhood of each student, appreciating all aspects of them, especially those culturally specific traits that have been negated by dominant culture. Validation, on the other hand, is your explicit acknowledgement to students that you are aware of the inequities that impact their lives. And again, you mentioned this on the last podcast, you know, that we always have uh, fellow educators and parents who like to chime in and say, just stop. Teaching isn't political. Just teach. Just just teach kids. Teach music. That's what it's all about. But to not acknowledge and validate things that our students are going through is doing them such a disservice and ourselves a disservice as educators because we're not able to teach to the extent that we want to, and the students can't learn as well. Um, so just once again, just that reminder of that validation piece is so important. Yeah, exactly. Yep. All right. All right. Um, can we move on to the next chapter? Or yes. Is there more? I really enjoy digging into chapter six. Chapter six is about establishing alliance in the learning partnership. And this is really where it's talking about, okay, how can you become an ally to that student to help them move towards that independent learning? Um, 
she talked a lot in the beginning about learned helplessness, which is mm-hmm. a term that we hear a lot. And it's it's definitely a thing. Um, the belief that a student has no control over their ability to improve as a learner. And I know I have seen students who have learned helplessness of all socioeconomic statuses, of all um, you know, different races and ethnicities. It's not just something that I've seen with one particular group of students. I've seen the gamut of it. Have you seen that with your students as well? Yeah, most definitely. Um, and then I also wanted to pull out um, on page 91, this quote, uh, and she's quoting a bilingual teacher in a meeting who said, when a teacher expresses sympathy over failure, lavishes praise for completing a simple task or offers unsolicited help, you send unintended messages of low expectations. And then I made me think, I think I am I know I've fallen into that and I've mm-hmm. seen others fallen into that, um, you know, that non-strategy yeah. of, of, you know, overpraising or, um, dumbing down or and and it does send a message of low expectation totally yeah and this is definitely something that definitely happens at higher levels with marginalized populations and low-income student populations um you know and i yeah i agree i know that i've been caught in that trap and i've seen fellow educators who i love and respect be caught in that trap and it comes from a place of good you want to encourage your kids and you want to be positive with them over every little thing they do but in the end is that really serving them if you're not being specific with the feedback and if it's not if it's not authentic then right and, and it's a vicious cycle that just turns into hopelessness, helplessness, hopelessness. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Um, something else on the same page that I appreciate is something called the stereotype threat. This is somebody, um, Claude Steele, uh, coined this term. And I just really appreciate the definition of it. Stereotype, again, I'm reading on page 91. Stereotype threat is a type of racially charged, oh my gosh, can I pronounce this? Amygdala. Thank you. Amygdala hijack. It happens when a student becomes anxious about his inadequacy as a learner because he believes his failure on an assignment or test will confirm the negative stereotype associated with his race, socioeconomic status, gender, or language background. That was a really interesting point, and it's definitely something that I'm going to be more conscious of moving forward is, you know, how my students are internalizing stereotypes that they are aware of. Um that's a hard pill to swallow to think about how actions I could be doing or my colleagues can be doing can be, can be emphasizing that with a kid, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That is, that is tricky. Uh, And then she goes on about how we do validate students' experiences. Mm -hmm. Um, And, and again, it's, it's laying the groundwork of, getting to know students and building that trust and continuously validating the humanness of our students. Um, and I don't, I, I, you were just saying that you really enjoyed this chapter. I felt a little overwhelmed by this chapter, mm, honestly. Okay. Um, because there's so many things that I went, Oh no, I think I might've done this. Oh no, I think I've done this before. Um, but of course the solutions are are not easy if they were easy. 
you know, we would be doing this. And so as I was reading some of these, not even strategies, but some of these like, how do we build this foundation? I was thinking, I, I don't know, I guess in my mind, a lot of roadblocks were popping up. Like, well, how do I do this when I teach this many kids? And how do yeah. I set aside time to conference with students when I see so many students? Like, what does that look like in the music room, right? Right. Oh, yeah. I definitely wanted to get to that piece because she does talk a lot about the feedback piece um, towards the end of this chapter. But before we get there, can we talk yes. about this is really the part that I really enjoyed is the, the section about being a warm demander because that yes. is that is 100% the philosophy I have tried and, you know, tried and always aspire to be. Um, but really going into what what is a warm demander, what does that actually look like, and what are some ways you can work towards being a warm demander. And specifically on page 99, there's a really excellent chart that shows different quadrants of where you might fall as a teacher. So um, the, the scale of active demandingness to passive leniency, so how much you're going to demand of your kids, how much you're going to let slide, and then the other scale of personal warmth to professional distance. And mm -hmm. so from there, you have the warm demander, you have the technocrat, who's all about being like that perfect wonderful excellent pedagogue but pedagogue but not connecting with students as well you have the sentimentalist who ex really connects and loves on their students but doesn't expect enough of them and therefore they're kind of that pushover and then you have the elitist who is not expecting very much and is also distant from their students um yeah this is somebody who just has low expectations and i kind of think of this as that that teacher who just doesn't, I don't, how, how do I say this? <laughs> Comes in, I, I teach and it's up to the kids to learn it, you know, kind of yeah. a thing. Yeah, you know, as I was reading all of, and I've seen these before, this is like the big chunk of this book that I have seen previously mm -hmm. is all about the warm demander. And I was kind of thinking about um, some examples of people from specific um, age groups of students taught. Yes. Right. Like the elitist, I was thinking college professors. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And you can get away with that in college because mm -hmm. that is kind of like your stereotypical college prof is someone who knows their stuff and they're the sage on the stage and they're not making connection with students because that's not their job. Their job is to be the expert mm -hmm. and you student need to glean from them all that you can. And if you can't, that's your problem. Right. I was thinking, and I can answer this first, Tanya, if you want, but if if you weren't the warm demander that we all want to be, where on this quadrant do you find yourself leaning towards when you aren't on your best? Oh, I know what I am. I mean, I, I, I want to be a warm demander for sure. Well, of course. But, and it's interesting because I think I've shifted through my career. Mm -hmm. I think I started out more as the elitist, mm -hmm. definitely in my early days, and I think that also goes hand in hand with um, being a younger teacher and, and wanting to be respected as a teacher right. and unsure of oneself, but knowing your content and just thinking, well, I know my content, therefore, you know, that's what it's about. Yeah. And not about, not thinking about the teaching side of it. Yeah. But honestly, I think that I tend to skew more as the sentimentalist. Mm. 
And I, I definitely yeah. skew to the technocrat when I'm not on my best, you know, when I'm not making conscious efforts. And I think I have used it as an excuse. I have so many kids. I don't have time to make personal relationships with all these kids. I know that I've used that as an excuse before. Um, so yeah, that was definitely interesting to think about how I need to go more to that side of, cause I, I have very high expectations for my kids, but do I also let them know why I have those expectations? And am I, am I, encouraging it in a warm and meaningful way that starts with the relationship first. That's what I'm working on. Yeah. And I think that I, I start out with having higher expectations, but I think that they get lowered and I get, um, I, I think that sometimes I'm faced with like, they're not going to make it. They're not going to, they're not going to achieve this thing that I thought they could achieve. So now I've got to lower the bar. And I hate that. I hate admitting that. And it's not always, but um, definitely, for sure, have yeah. I done that um, and just skewed towards, well, I, I want to make sure they feel loved and that they feel a sense of belonging. And I want that to come first, right? Yeah. So. And without sitting here and reading it, I just want to also affirm if for anyone who's listening who hasn't read the book or if you just have skimmed it but not really dug in this section you know page 100 to 101 she does give bullet points of you know specific things you can do to move yourself in the direction of being a warm demander and leading your students to independent learning you know she was very clear at the beginning of this book and rightfully so this isn't like a, a mm -hmm. checklist of here's what you do and now you're a culturally responsive educator congratulations you passed the test but I I do appreciate the times where she gives, you know, specific ideas and, and things to dig into because we know as educators, we need that. We need some concrete steps. So there are some concrete steps in there. For example, she talks about giving your students checklists to help them hone decision-making skills. Checklists and rubrics act, act as scaffolds for students. So Okay. Can we hold up on that? Oh, can, yeah. I want to dig into something that oh, I... Yes that I underlined and I wrote that's super controversial and possibly problematic in the margins. Ooh, okay, what are you talking about? Okay, well you just mentioned because she has some bullet points of um, how to make students more independent and give them tools and give them concrete things that they need from us in order to move forward in their learning and take more more, more ownership of their learning. All yeah. right, so we've got uh, first bullet, bullet point, kid-friendly vocabulary for talking about their learning moves. That's great. Um, checklists, and you just mentioned this one, to help hone their decision-making skills during learning and focus their attention during data analysis. Now, so here's where I'm digging in. Okay. Um, I'm just going to continue reading. From, okay. and this is page 100. Checklists and rubrics act as cognitive uh, scaffolds. For example, Wheeler and Swords use a process called contrast contrastive analysis to help African-American students who speak and write in African-American vernacular, AAV, improve their academic writing skills. They provide students with a list of top 10 AAV patterns that they should be on the lookout for and reduce in their writing. By using the checklist, students are able to correct their usage during the revision process. Okay, so you can uh, tell me that 
I am wrong, but hasn't there been some pushback regarding the use of what's called here African-American vernacular in writing and in um, communicating? So I know that at one, well, not one point in time, but there used to be, this is the proper way, the proper way to communicate is to avoid using um, verbs like this or using African-American vernacular as it says here. But then just within the last few years, I've heard that, you know what, this is a, com this is a way that some people communicate and why are we code switching and why are we saying that the um, the gold standard is the way newscasters speak or journalists write or have been writing for years and years and years so if we're if we're having a checklist and pushing kids to not write in the way they've been communicating in their families, in their communities, what are we asking of, of them? Are we asking, are we insisting that there is a very specific way to write and speak? And at one point in time, I would have said, yeah, but now I'm not so sure. Well, I did peak. This book was published in 2015. And a lot okay. of new thoughts and ideas have emerged since. 20 well, I know. I'm just saying. I'm just so, like, how does that hit now? How does that? How does that? I, yeah, I also thought that was an interesting example, and maybe not. Yeah, what I would consider to be culturally responsive. I don't know enough about that particular subject to chime in, but I do know what you're saying. And I wonder if Zaretta Hammond would use that particular example again if she were yes. to. Yes, and I realized an example. And here's my and here's my out and yours as well. I'm an elementary music teacher. I'm not teaching writing, really. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so I, the, now, if a if a student comes up and speaks to me in a way where, you know, they're they're using. Um, African-American vernacular. I just keep using this because this is the term that she uses. Right. AAV. Yeah. If a student's communicating that to me through writing, through talking, I'm not going to correct that. Right. And I think, yeah, exactly. That's what it is. It's it's knowing the purpose of the writing, um, you know, and taking it away from being specifically African-American vernacular and just talking about in general slang, teaching kids when it's appropriate to use more casual and slang versus academic language. Well, I and I agree. I really do. And I, you know, years ago would have really really, really emphatically said, this is the way that we write and this is the way that we speak. But now I'm not so sure if we should stand behind that idea. It, yeah. Like I said, I've got an out. It doesn't, it's not something that I need to push on as an educator because I teach music. Sure. You know, I've said what I will do. Like I'm not, that's not going to stop me because I don't teach writing. However, I'm just wondering you know well, how that's I mean, ha what's very, happening in education as a result of that like a very obvious example is the use of the word ain't early on in my career i would have and did correct students and say Let's, please don't use the word ain't that's not 
a correct word. And now I don't. I, I don't correct it at all. Um, so you don't yeah. break into don't say ain't because that's what I do. <laughs> no. Yeah. And I just don't do that chant anymore either. Um, oh, you don't? Oh, cute. Okay. No, I don't. I've always found that chant to be a little, eh, you know, yeah. like what, what's the point? Um, so that, that's a very like obvious, you know, example of slang that that's used across, you know, multiple ethnic groups. But yeah, I don't know. But that that was a that was a weird example. I agree. Yeah, and and like I said, I mean, I'm really just nitpicking on this specific example. It has that's nothing really you. to do. I just was like, huh, that's hmm. Where are we at with that? I don't know. Yeah. Like, I don't, I don't know. Yeah. All right, but like, I totally drag us, drug us off topic. No, no, no. That's that's fine. That's why we're doing this. Um. um but like, reading through this bullet pointed list of. Yeah some concrete things to be an ally, right? I was trying to think of about it, about it in a music education context, right? Yeah. yeah. And trying to just translate that into, so let's, can we talk a little bit about what that might look like? So, okay. We already mentioned kid friendly vocabulary. I think, you know, vocabulary that we use in the music room for specific elements of music, we have, I think a perfect example of kid-friendly vocabulary are rhythm syllables, for right. example, yeah. right? Um, checklists to help hone their decision-making skills during learning and focus their attention during data analysis. That's a little tricky. Um, I mean, we could have checklists just in the realm of contrasts in music as if we're talking about performances. Well, I think about any time you have students compose, you can give mm -hmm. them checklists of these are the things that we're looking for specifically, not just giving them a piece of paper and saying, have at it, kid, you know, um, giving them those scaffolds so they know what what we're looking for and some concrete examples of things. Um, you know, we talk about this a lot, even within like our Kodai inspired framework about the importance of giving them the tools first, and then they take those tools and they run with it and yeah. not just giving them a blank slate, but giving them the vocabulary and giving them the tools so that they can be creative. That right. teaching creativity in music requires some background knowledge first and requires some of those scaffolds be put in place. Yeah. First. And that is specifically a, um, I mean, that, that is a Kodai tenant and i know that orf delcro's not exactly like that like they have a different slightly different um approach to creativity yeah um all right but going on tools for tracking their own progress towards learning targets and this is where we talk about the data data collecting done by the student yeah, and this is where it gets into data collecting. It gets into student-created goals. It gets into that feedback process between us and the students. And this is where we have to be realistic and say, we as music educators who see our kids X amount of time and we see all of these students, you know, we need to simplify this process. Feedback yes. is important, and we need to make sure we are giving students individual feedback and very clear and authentic feedback. But um, it's not going to look the same for us as it is for a classroom teacher. Um, you know, something you know, Tanya, that we are working on in our district are, um, well, they're not rubrics. What are we calling them? I already forgot what we're calling them. Um, My brain is on summer mode. So, see, look, I was about to say success criteria. No, that's it's, not it. 
It's um uh, <laughs> scales, scale proficiency, proficiency scales, scales. proficiency scales. And I think the idea of proficiency scales is kind of headed in this right direction. Um, it's just a matter of how do I communicate that with the students? How do I allow students to self-assess and then create goals based on that? Haven't wrapped my head around that at all. I know, um, I know. It, it's it's. Yeah, it's tricky, and this whole I I have often thought, you know, I I have heard of music teachers who do have students at the beginning of the year set musical goals, and I think what a wonderful thing that what a powerful thing that must be. And then I also think I don't honestly know if I would be able to create a system where they could consistently and you know realistically assess and me assess uh, like I don't know how that works right in our framework of how often we see students and yeah I mean it would I, not be a year-long goal I'm sure it would be a, a shorter I could see maybe doing like a um, project-based learning pro project where you have a goal within that but that does not seem like the same thing yeah, and I mean, I, I would know. say the closest thing I've come to it is really concrete things like when we did recorder karate and the kids were like, yeah. and I was always very, I, and I always said to the students, I don't expect everyone to get their black belt. The students who want to get their black belt and are interested in their getting their black belt will get their black belt. What I want each of you to do is think about what what you think are realistic and awesome goal for yourself would be I want to make it to this level I want to be able to play this many songs and that's what you go for so oh, yeah. that's probably the only closest thing I can come to when it comes to this type of feedback and this type of of student goal setting um you know definitely something I want to keep working on and need yeah. to wrap my head around more but this yeah, year, and, and for YouTube, especially being new at a school, for me, number one goal, you know, goes back to this, is building the relationships with right. the kids first and seeing where they're at. Um, so I'm. this is definitely a, a longer-term goal, not something I'm going to try to figure out by August when I go back to school. You know? No. And then the other thing I was concerned about is, like, the timeline of things. Because especially when it comes to the self-assessing from the student, in order for successful self-assessing to happen, the student has to want to grow yeah. and want to learn. And I mean, any given class, um, you're, there's going to be kids who are not quite there yet because of any, you know, a lack of trust, a lack of... Um, not motivation, but a lack of, of the growth mindset that we talk about in the next chapter. But yeah. like, there's all kinds of reasons that children might not want to work towards a goal. And, and so how do you get everybody on board? I mean, I know timelines are going to have to look different for all kids, but I tell you what, by the end of the year, if I had, there's a few students from the entire school population that like if they're engaged and they are doing what the rest of us are doing th I'm thrilled like that's that's a win because maybe at the beginning of the year this music was not their favorite place to be for whatever reason 
Right. Right. And so I got, maybe that's the goal. But then again, is that that is that being a warm demander? I don't think so. I right. I don't. I think that that is not expecting enough of them. But I don't know. It it, it, it see it just it felt overwhelming. Yeah. Honestly, to look at that list and think about the all the all the students that come in the room yeah. and how do we do this well i did appreciate again i love my bulleted list on page 103 she gives four characteristics of quality feedback yeah. is instructive rather than evaluative and so this is where i think our formative assessment world of music education we really do have the edge here because so everything we do is formative assessment i mean mm -hmm. We are constantly listening and adjusting and giving kids feedback. Um, it's specific and in the right dose. So only focusing on one or two points with kids, not telling them everything that needs adjusting. Um, it's timely. I think for me, this is the hardest one, is giving timely feedback to as many students as I can. And then is delivered in a low-stress, supportive environment. So then that goes back to the relationships again and making sure you're not triggering anxiety that you know your students well enough to know the amount of feedback so yes those those four things are helpful to me as I'm going to be thinking about this for sure yeah no I I liked that too and I also liked I appreciated the approach of wise feedback where it is not the oh you did this so great and now maybe you should work on this but you also did this so great so not the oreo cookie <laughs> yeah. Not the that, but instead feedback that is a check in and hey, I know you can do this thing. I'm validating you. Yeah. Um, and then specific feedback and then space for the student to react and how they feel about it. Mm -hmm. And then giving the student here's some specific things. And you know what? As I think through this, I think that I often don't give space for the student to react yeah. because I think I'm very good at giving specific feedback, not, you know, uh, there's another chart on the top of page 104, mm -hmm. um, instructive and corrective. I think I'm pretty good at the instructive and correct corrective, very specific feedback. Like you need to do this, um, but I don't give space for reaction generally. Mm -hmm. um, and then giving specific actions to, to improve and then asking the student to paraphrase what he, they heard you say, which is something I don't know if I ever do, honestly. And then offer emotional encouragement and restate your belief in the student. Mm -hmm. It's important not to skip this part. That's, uh, this is honestly a checklist I could see me writing down and referring to. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And then, you know, when, when it all becomes overwhelming, I think of like an example of being, you know, for whole group instruction, just not saying good job. Like that was oh, a, no. a habit that I had to break both for whole class and individual. I would just say, okay, good job. And then we'd move on to the next thing. Cause I just felt yeah. like I needed to fill the space with something positive. And it's, yeah. I've had to break myself of that habit that if I'm not really specifically calling out one specific thing that happened in a positive way or a corrective way, I just need to not talk. I don't, I can just say thank you. Like if a student, for example, sings a solo, but they're not singing, you know, at the correct pitch level or whatever, I don't have to say good job just because they tried. I can say thank you and I can move on to the next student, right? Yeah, right. And you can, and, and the other thing I was thinking about is like, okay, this 
way of giving feedback has to be a one-on-one, -on -one, not everybody listening situation. Exactly. Yeah. And then coming yeah. back to that student later and giving more specific feedback of here's yes. what I heard. Here's what I know you can do. Let's try this next time kind of a thing. Right. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, shall we move on to chapter seven? Chapter seven. So shifting chapter seven academic is... mindset in the learning partnership. This is hard. Mindset is so hard. And you know what? I have I have the Carol Dweck book. Um, I haven't read the entire book, I'll be honest. But we had a huge push, and I'm sure a lot of districts did, but we had a huge push on growth mindset yep. a few years ago. And it has stuck with me, mostly because I am really honestly stymied about how exactly to cultivate a growth mindset um, in anybody. I don't, I mean, it's interesting and, and I'm really jumping ahead because at the end of the chapter, she mentions go through your class roster and write down next to each kid's name, who has a growth mindset and who does not. And who, uh, what, what she, she doesn't call it a closed mindset. It's called, um, I, don't. Oh, I know what you're talking about. I just don't know what page is on because you skipped. No, I'm, sorry. I'm sorry. Anyway, <laughs> just I, I'm I'm really trying to be generalized. And yeah. here's here's what I'm trying to generally say. I don't know if I know anybody that has a growth mindset, honestly. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I don't think I have a growth mindset. Well. Because I find myself, uh, my self-talk oftentimes we could take off one of these pages, you know, well, I, I, it's, it's normal and it's normal for us. To, it's not like you have one or the other. We all go through uh, phases. Yes, I know we ebb and flow. I, but I think again, yes. to me, the biggest takeaway of this chapter is just being authentic with kids and not having this surface level, like you can do it posters all over your classroom and saying that you are now teaching growth mindset. It's bigger than that. So, yeah. um, Page 109, great little chart. There are four components of academic mindset. I'm just gonna read the, the titles of each one. I belong to this academic community. I can succeed at this. My ability and competence grow with my effort and this work has value for me. And I would say of those four things, the place where I always wanna work is this work has value for me. Because for students, so often we get, why do I have to do this? You know, so I, I will say, especially with my older students, I have heard this question, why do I have to even take music? I'm not gonna be a musician. So it's always coming back to that, well, you are a musician, number one, and, you know, well, how can this serve you in your life? And, you know, how is singing Apple Tree in second grade relevant to this, their students' lives? Well, we can sit here and talk about it as educators, but how can I convey that to the students in a way that's succinct and meaningful um, that leads to that academic mindset? So for me, I will say the work has value for me section is the one that I'm always striving to make more clear and relevant to my students. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. They're, they're, yeah. I, I mean, they're, they're all very, very important. Um, I think it's very interesting. My ability and competence grow with my effort and that's hard for students, not just students, but for any human to understand that the, um, effort comes first and in, in, 
and a lot of it. A lot of effort comes before there are fruits of your labor. Right. And that's a hard thing to convey and it's a hard thing to remember when you're really trying to get better at anything. Yeah. Yeah. And um and, and that's challenging. Yeah. The other thing I want to mention that I found to be extremely helpful was on page one twelve, one thirteen, talking about microaggressions and negativity bias. This is a big oh, yeah. like check yourself as an educator section. Um and she even breaks down different forms of microaggressions that show up in schools, microassaults that involve misusing power and privilege, microinsults involve being insensitive to uh, students, culturally and linguistically diverse students, um, micro-invalidations that negate or nullify a person's experiences or realities. Um, just, I just really appreciate the way she broke that down into very specific things so I can think about it and check myself and, and call in my fellow educators when I hear these things happening. Yes. Um, because this is something we know 100% chips away at students ability to have a growth mindset is when yeah. microaggressions are coming at them. Um, so just, uh, again, awareness and understanding of ourself and our, our colleagues is so important. Yeah. A few years ago, um, and this is part of my mentor training in our district, uh, I went to a session all about microaggressions. And at the very beginning of the session, um, the woman leading it, she gave everybody a very small little piece of sandpaper and had us rub it across our knuckle continuously for the first five minutes as she talked. Mm. Um, and then check in and go, how's that feel right now? Um, that's what microaggressions do is that it's, you know, death by a thousand paper cuts yeah. idea. And that it's, it's not um, the end of the world, something, I'm, I mean, you know, there's, all different kinds of levels of uh, how it so a, a specific insult might affect somebody but when it happens over and over again and it wears down it wears on you over and over again um, and I thought that was that was a very concrete way of demonstrating like the effect of microaggressions and I often think like uh, I, I mean I can well I in the middle of page 113 are at the top of the of the page where it says um, that we respond to negative experiences up to three times more than positive experiences, wow. right? And that's that's everybody. So if you're getting even tiny negative comments or snubs or looks or nonverbal communication, um, that it builds up and it builds up and it builds up and uh, it's no wonder that that has a huge effect on us. I mean, Carrie, can you quote, I'm thinking about our um, ratings from our, our podcast on, on iTunes and people write things. I, I can remember specific verbiage from our one super negative. Yep. Uh, go look it up. No, don't look it yeah. up. Uh, comment. <laughs> Or give us some positive ones, but only real ones, not not cat poster inspirational quote ones. Right, right. I mean, and, and there's been so many lovely people who have said very specific, wonderful, kind things about yeah. our podcast. Can I quote any of those? 
No. Well, AG, I can quote yours because yours was the first one. You win. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> and it was personal. AJ it was wins. personal. No. Uh, so, yeah. And that was, yeah. Well, I mean, but so many, there's been other ones that have been personal too. Yeah. But I really remember the one negative one. And even though I was like, well, I mean, when when I think about it and I go, okay, this person has completely diff different political views and and they are really not for we're not for them right they're not, not for fine. us that's it's fine. fine but it still is something like i remember the specifics of that one right so just back to that whole one that one negative experience has had so much impact yeah. so i know this is maybe a bad comparison but i'm just like microaggressions they they are a thing of yeah. course um yeah, and I really, like you said, love how she defines specific micro, micro assaults, micro insults, micro invalidations. Um, yeah, yeah, that was that was very helpful to me, and you know, just always remembering, you know, intent versus impact, and you know, even though you didn't mean to make your student feel badly by saying whatever you might have said, and I'm talking about me in this situation too. None of us are faultless when it comes to this, you know, but the impact that our words and our actions have on our students is, it's huge. And we just got to check ourselves all the time. Yes. Yes. And all so, right. um, yeah, so I was just complaining about like, how do you do that mind shift? And then she gives us some specific right. examples about giving validation self-efficacy and the feedback loop, which I tell you what, I can never hear all of this about self-efficacy and the feedback loop too much because I, it's still, I, I still need to chew on it more yeah. and more and more. And this is back to that whole um, self-efficacy um, being this, I think that I can do this philosophy and my right. ability and my competence grow with my effort. I can succeed at this. Um, and, and that's a hard thing to remember when you are in the trenches and trying to get better. And the other thing is that the road to success or the road to attaining any kind of skill or knowledge is not a straight line up. It's like up and then down and then up and then down, down. Like I think about me in the wordle. Like I had a, I had like a few days there that I was getting it in two or three shots. And yeah. then I had like two days in a row where I didn't get it at all. <laughs> yep. So, you know, going. there you go. <laughs> yeah. You keep doing those wordles. <laughs> okay. And as we look at these strategies to help shift mindsets, there's some great ideas here. Um, and a lot of these things I have actually uh, come across in therapy, honestly, like this back talk strategy um, that, and these are all ideas of what to lead your students through. Uh, like on page 119, there is a success analysis protocol, which I could see using in the classroom where you have students um, get together in small groups of three people mm -hmm. and one student shares their learning move or something that they've done um, that they think that they did well, like in the last few weeks or a few class periods in the class. And then they describe what is it about that learning experience that they thought made it successful. Um, and then the rest of the group and this protocol, by the way, is very, very similar to um, 
a, a conflict resolution protocol where the idea is one person talks about this thing that they did and, and how how it was successful, how they got there. And then the other people in the group have a short amount of time where they can ask clarifying questions. And then the, the group, they do an analysis of what they heard the presenter say, and the presenter does not ask, um, add other things. Yeah. Um, and then the print presenter says, oh, this is what I heard you say. So it's this kind of back and forth of like, I'm saying this thing, you're saying this thing. Yeah. Or wait, let let us ask questions to make sure we understand what you're saying. Oh, right. now we understand you're saying this thing. And then the uh, initial person says, yeah, you summarize that I said, anyway, it's just this whole review of why was this thing successful? Yeah. Take yeah, a moment to celebrate the success of the presenter. Okay. So, but this is involved. Right. Yeah. So you were talking about the success analysis protocol. Yes. Um, but then she also gives the back talk strategy, which is yes. more like a one-on-one -on -one you would have with a student. I've definitely, I mean, nothing this official, but I've definitely had these types of conversations one-on-one -on -one with students. Um, this is what I would definitely consider to be part of like a restorative, not in a formal restorative conference with a student, but more of an informal one where I just kind of keep a kid back from class for a minute or two or stop them in the hallway and, you know, talk about, well, what's going on in music and, you know, if they're making very negative comments about, well, I'm always this or I never this, then I can say, well, actually, I noticed that in class you did this and this and this. And then what did you notice, you know, and having that conversation, yeah. you know, what she talks about interrupting that negative self-talk. Um, Giving evidence of how yeah. this thing that you say that you're bad at is not true. Exactly. Yeah, the tricky part of that is that it takes a long well, it depends, but it takes a while to get kids to turn away from, I don't like it. I hate this. I hate this song. I hate music. I hate that. Like that. And, and she mentions it from a specific student in this book, you know, that that's a defense mechanism of, right. well, I don't have to admit that I'm not good at this if I just say it's not worth my time. Right. Right. Which then goes back to the whole relevance thing I was talking about earlier of making sure that, you know, if if the kids understand the relevance of what we're doing and how it's meaningful to them. And if the fact is that what I'm doing truly isn't meaningful to them, then that recalls, you know, that's a bigger backtrack on my part. And that's getting maybe student choice and agency, you know, that brings up that yeah. whole topic. So it's all woven together. But it is. Yeah. But like you were saying a little bit off mic is that when do we do this? Right. Yeah, that's that's yeah. the tricky part is is the time always the time. right. So, but, but I appreciate the protocols are there. So when I am ready or need something specific, I have those there that I can go to. Exactly. And now it's time for our coda section where we discuss um one of the wonderful awesome things that we are enjoying outside of the music room because we like to have a life yeah kind of yeah life so carrie what are you digging right now well i'm gonna mention an album that i've been enjoying um Ooh. one of my favorite artists i love florence and the machine 
and I love her, their new album, um, which is called Dance Fever. It just came out in May of 2022, and I had time to listen to it a little bit when it came out, but I've been listening to it a lot more, and I mean, I have nothing else to say other than it's just a really great album if you love Florence and Machine, and just more awesome music from from her and from that group. Well, that's funny that you mentioned that. Well, because I was going to mention an album, too. Oh, yay, music. Oh, yay, music. I like music. Um, So I've gotten a little obsessive. I know people always say, I'm obsessed. But really, I've been listening to this band and this album pretty much like just on repeat everywhere I go. In fact, my children have had it with me and they've actually called me out on it a lot. They're like this again. Um, so this, there's this band uh, called Fontaine's DC and they are like a post-punk um, band from Dublin. What's That's the DC part, Dublin City. And their latest album is called Skintifia. And it's just amazing. It's very, um, it's it's kind of dark. It's very punk-ish. And I just can't stop listening to it because um, I'm cultivating my Irish singing accent. I know. It's <laughs> nice. strange, but I really enjoy singing along and listening very loud to Fontaine's DC. Cool. I'll have to yeah. give that a listen. Nice. We've reached the double bar line. Thank you for listening to Music Teacher Coffee Talk. Show notes can be found at musicteachercoffeetalkpodcast.com. You can connect with us on Facebook and Instagram. Just look for Music Teacher Coffee Talk. If you enjoyed this show, please consider subscribing, rating, and leaving us a very kind review on iTunes to help others find this podcast. And we always appreciate folks buying us a coffee, so look for that link on our show notes and down our Facebook page. In our next episode, we'll be talking about Part 3 of Culturally Responsive Teaching and the Brain by Zaretta Hammond. That episode is scheduled to drop around July 17th. So until next time, this is Tanya. And this is Carrie wishing you happy musicking.